Let's pray together. Father in heaven, at this moment, we ask that your spirit that has been present will continue to abide in our hearts. We pray that you will speak to us, that you will calm our minds, you will still our hearts, that we will be able to hear you speaking clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If God's favor could be measured by lineage or by proximity, then John would have been very rich. Rich like Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, and Bill Gates. Filthy rich. Luke chapter 1 informs us that John the Baptist was born in the hill country of Judah. John was born in a time and a place where lineage was enormously important. Who your daddy was, who your granddaddy was, who your great-granddaddy was, were all important. In fact, they were so important that you can imagine that if you had the right lineage, it was like having a rewards card to God. The way you could get points on that rewards card might be if your daddy was a priest, if your great-granddaddy perhaps was connected to a patriarch, if you did something important that was historical, maybe if you had a rabbi in your family tree, and all of those things would become points on your rewards card for God. You would be able to use that rewards card for social ranking and status. You'd be able to use that reward card when it came to the affirmation of society and the respect you were given. You'd be able to use that reward card to sit at the head of the table and to garner respect. John the Baptist, in that sense, was in the spiritual 1%. If you look at John's story, you will see what I mean. The gospel writer in Luke chapter 1 goes out of his way to inform us that John was so special that God blessed him while he was yet unborn. We're told that when Elizabeth was carrying John, when the Holy Spirit came on her and the child leapt in her womb. So John was special indeed. His lineage, his pedigree, his spiritual patronage were unparalleled anywhere in the Bible. His father, Zachariah, was a priest of the order of Abijah. His mother, Elizabeth, was a daughter of Aaron, the same Aaron who was deputized by God to speak for Moses to take Israel out of Egypt. That Aaron, she was related. Not only was she related to that Aaron, Luke chapter 1 verse 6 tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous in the sight of God observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Adding to this astonishing heritage, we read that an angel from heaven named Gabriel gave the birth announcement, arranged the gender reveal party, and put together the naming ceremony for John. And this happened while Zechariah was working in the temple, the most sacred space in the most sacred land on planet Earth. This was how John's life began. And for those who sit here this morning who are trying to figure out where you want to go in life, uh, take courage to know that God actually has 
ordained and thought about how you might be used even before you were born. So if you are confused, don't give up on God to help you to navigate where you might go. Now, like the early years of Jesus, when we read the Bible, we don't really find out much about what John did after this august beginning to his life. But we do find in Luke chapter 1, verse 80, this one sentence. This is what Luke says about John. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness till the day of his manifestation to Israel. This doesn't mean that much, but some scholars have gone and looked at the life of John and looked at his ministry, and they have posited that perhaps John from an early age, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, perhaps was sent into the Qumran Desert and was with a sect called the Essenes. And the reason they think John may have spent the beginning years of his life with the um, Essenes in Qumran is because they mirrored some of John's practices when he came and was manifested before Israel. They both practiced the rite of baptism. They both associated this rite with invitation and repentance. They both practiced a type of asceticism in the sense that they removed themselves from the world so they could be set apart for God. They also, this Qumran group and John, were eschatologically minded in that they were thinking about the end of time and the Messiah coming to give rescue to Israel. And so scholars say perhaps John, even though we only have one line in Luke chapter 1 verse 80, spent time with this sect in the desert. So to recap this life sketch, and it's important to understand who John is, we have John the Baptist, who is blessed by God in the womb of a righteous woman, who has a righteous father, who is a descendant of Aaron, he is married, uh, who is married to a righteous priest. John is announced, gendered, named, and given his vocational calling by a literal angel from heaven. And then when he begins his life, he is sent into the equivalent of the spiritual Navy SEALs with a Qumran sect. And when he comes out, he begins a religious revival, culminating with him baptizing his cousin, who just happens to be Jesus. John the Baptist. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone with a more sterling resume than John. If God's favor were measured by lineage and proximity, John would have been rich in approbation, lavish in God's good favor. Filthy rich. His rewards card would have been maxed out with points. And then we get to Matthew chapter 11. Turn with me as we read just three verses and wrestle with what this has to say to us today. Because in Matthew chapter 11, my friends, we find that John has gone from a voice crying in the wilderness to a crying voice in a Roman jail. John has gone from wilderness to pent-upness, from freedom to confinement, 
from wide open spaces to the captivity of a cell. I imagine that John would have often taken out his rewards card, which should have been the key for all of God's blessing, swiped it and found that it did not work. If John had been alive today, perhaps he would have been one of those people, my friends, who could have traced his lineage back to one of the pioneers of the church, who could have had three or four generations of being an Adventist, who could have had more generations of being a follower of Christ and who hits an acute stage in their life where it seems that is not helping them in the current predicament they find themselves in. So John, finding this change of place has given him a change of perspective. He's no longer in the wilderness. He's no longer baptizing. People are no longer coming to him. He is now in a different desert, no longer prophesying, but questioning. Not giving answers, but asking questions and feeling abandoned, facing acute mental stress, feeling desperate longings of desolation, feeling politically exiled and left out to dry. His name and his character raked through the mud as people say, we knew he was a nutter. He's off his rocker. Look where he is now. And then Matthew records this passage beginning in verse 2 of Matthew 11. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the one coming or do we look for another? And so John backed in a corner, feeling abandoned, feeling desolate from his support, from his savior. Ask this heartbreaking question when the disciples of his come to visit him in jail in the hope that their answer to his question can mollify the, the doubt and the fear that he is dealing with. And he asks this question, are you the one who is to come or do we wait for another? And this afternoon, my friends, I feel the pain of John's question. Are you the one to come or do we need to look for another? I understand it so much because John is looking at Jesus Christ who gave this Nazareth manifesto when he stood up and he invoked the Isianic call to liberty where he said in Luke chapter four, verse eight, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He had sent me to proclaim release to the captives. And John is saying, what gives? What about this captive? Release me. And as we begin another year, perhaps some of you stand in solidarity with John in asking this question of Jesus. Are you the one to come or are we to wait for another? This question gives voice to the latent hesit hesitancy that even lingers 
as we try to live our life as followers of God. It gives voice to the doubts that can sometimes creep into our life when things don't go the way we'd hope. Are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? It's the question that I ask and perhaps that you have asked from your own prison that confines you to a limited imagination of how God may be working in your life and sometimes leaves you feeling like God has left you short. It's the question we ask from our penitentiaries that can't see beyond the concrete walls of our daily life. It's the question we ask from our jails when we are going through so much self-recrimination, we just don't know how we can face the next day. Are you the one who is to come, Jesus? Or are we to wait for another? It's January 11. There are mega fires in Australia. There are earthquakes in Puerto Rico. There are rumors of war in Iran. There are people suffering the breath of this country. There are people globally facing a future that seems to have no hope. We feel stuck sometimes unable to move forward, feeling an acute sense of hopelessness like John did. Because there are difficulties at home, there is frustration at work, there is confusion at school, and we feel stuck. But listen to how Jesus responds to John's question. Are you the one to come or should we look for someone else? Jesus responds in Matthew chapter 11, verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, there's a couple of ways we could go here, but I will tell you my gut reaction to Jesus' answer to John's question. Because I feel my gut reaction is that Jesus, that's just not good enough. This is an inadequate answer and reward for someone who has lived an impeachable life, an unimpeachable life. This is not the reward you give to the person who has lived their life following you. How is this my reward when I lived an entire life eating well, taking care of my body, exercising, and then I get a result which says I have cancer? This does not make any sense. Why is it that I watched my friend who was 38 suffer and die inexplicably? And the answer you want to tell me, Jesus, when I want to know, are you still here? Are you the one that I should still put my hope in? The answer you're going to give me is look at what I'm doing for other people. It's just not good enough. And I wrestled as I read this text. And I realized 
that the God I serve, the God that we serve, that wakes us up and brings us here is a God who will often challenge us and who we cannot sanitize and put in boxes and who we have to wrestle with sometimes. Because look at how Jesus Christ responds to John. He does not reprimand him for his doubt or for his questions. He doesn't say, John, no, 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 no. You should know better. Your mama was a descendant of Aaron. Your dad was a priest. The Holy Spirit came and touched you in the womb. An angel named you. You know the game plan. Jesus Christ doesn't reprimand him for having a question. Jesus does not reprimand him for his anxiety. Jesus Christ does not do that to John. And my friends, if this is you this morning, he doesn't do it to you. And yet, Jesus challenges John. He doesn't let him off the hook when he asks this question. What Jesus does is he points to his work in response to John, and he itemizes every single thing he has done. And why does he do it? I think Jesus itemizes everything he has done in the hope that John's imagination may be restarted and his memory might be restored. And so he invokes the Old Testament. He invokes Psalm 35 and and Isaiah 61. And he tells him that I am that same Messiah. I am the one that you thought I was. Don't give up on me. And then at the end, in a a beatific form, he encourages John. He blesses him. And he does the same for all of us who may have similar doubts going into a new year. And he says, remain faithful no matter what may come. And then he even says, depending on your translation, blessed is he who does not fall away on account of me. And this word Jesus uses to say, blessed is he who falls away, is an interesting word. It's a key Mathean term, and the term is scandaliso, which in various contexts can be translated as take offense, stumble, or sin, because Jesus knows that his question is hard to swallow, his answer is hard to swallow. And the cognate in the English of this word scandaliso is to be scandalized. So Jesus says, When my answer to the questions that you have when you are going through acute stress, disappointment, lost hope, when you are looking to 2020 and you're thinking, if it was like 2019, I'm good. Tap me out. Jesus says, blessed is he who is not scandalized by me, who is not tripped up by me because I don't give the answer that you want to the question of your heart. And so Jesus answers and says, look at the things I'm doing. And his answer is not propositional saying, these are the things which I believe in, but his answer is experiential saying, these are the things I have done. And so he tells John in a sense, look at what I am doing and remember what I have done. And for some of us, it's going to be hard to feel like you're in a crucible right now, and Jesus is giving you this answer of remember. We're going to look forward to another year, but you need to remember what I have done. And as hard as it is, I think those of us who have followed Christ 
for any measure of time in our life can probably muster up some memories of when Jesus Christ was with us. You can think to 2019 when you fell asleep at the wheel and you miraculously woke up and you exited where you were supposed to without there being a crash. You can remember a difficult conversation that you thought was going to kill you to have and Jesus brought you through and you're still alive. Some of us may need to remember the 2014 diary that we had where we recorded in meticulous detail how God was so good to us when we didn't deserve it. And then we need to look and see what Jesus Christ is doing and say, oh, risen Christ, be with me for 2020. And you know, maybe the harder question in this text is can you live with God's answers to your questions? And if the answer is no, that's okay. God will not abandon you. And we hold hope that one day all our whys will be answered. So Jesus, who came and his works are seen around us, His works are testified around us. That same Jesus invites you to come and invites you to know that even in acute stress, even feeling like 2020 is going to be a slog to know that he is still God, even when we don't like his answers to our questions. And I think today, as we come to the table to celebrate communion, we are reminded of the greatest answer to these questions that we often have, and it's his act of love on the cross, which identified him with John and identifies him with all of us who suffer, with all of us who have questions. Jesus Christ acts on the cross, is the greatest declaration that he can give to us when we doubt his love, when we doubt his presence, that he has plunged into the depths of pain, of isolation, of desolation, of trauma, of grief, and he says, I know how it feels. And today we come to that table. And we remember that Jesus made a way so that we can live into the unknown future, confident in his known works in the past. So at this time, we are going to pause in the program and we're going to come together in this incredible act of foot washing. And let me say a word about this. You know, if you've grown up in the church, you may, depending on the church you went to, you may have just like poo-pooed foot washing, like, who's doing that? I'm out, not doing it. But I'm going to encourage you, if that has been you, to think about what it means and about the act that Jesus participated in and invited us to do the same. I spoke with someone who is not an Adventist, who came here for the first time during first serve, and who said, you know, I've I've been to many churches, never did the whole foot washing thing, and it was really meaningful. That touched me. That meant something. So I'm going to encourage you, if if you haven't done it before, if you think it's slightly gross, just kind of get over that hump, okay? And engage with this incredible symbol that Jesus Christ has given to us. There are places around the church uh, where you can go if you need to be directed. We can uh, let you know. I know we have a place in the fellowship hall and also in the um, 
church office for those who need mobility access. Um, but we encourage you, take part in this incredible moment. And for those of you who are going to stay here, no judgment, but we do ask you, we beg, we beseech you that if you're going to stay here, you think about this question of who Jesus is to you. If you want to visit, you're free to visit outside, but let this place be a place where we can think, where we can contemplate, where we can be saturated with the Spirit of God. So God bless you. We'll see you back um, after we have participated in the act of humility in the washing of feet, and then we will come to the table as we do what Christ invited us to.